Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and for, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. One tried-and-true method of interpreting the Bible is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Throughout this passage, did you hear echoes of Genesis 1 and 2? I made, I planted, I made, I gathered. We find in this passage fruit trees of all kinds, gardens, Irrigation and watering. You see, all this is reminiscent of what God did in the beginning in creating the heavens and the earth. When the Lord made and filled the earth, what did he do? He planted a garden in the middle of it and dug out all the streams so that it is well watered. So what is the king here in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 seeking to do? He is, in a way, seeking to reconstruct Eden. Here is a 
man who is almost like a second Adam, endowed with great wisdom and capability. He's been given a terrific amount of resources to carry out this work. He spares no expense in this endeavor. He has the cedars of Lebanon cut down for him. The gold of Ophir, ivory and stones, and he has an army of servants to do his bidding. In the end, what is the result of his project? He says that he still comes up short. It still adds up to vanity. Ecclesiastes, I think, is a book that can be summed up with a theme of longing for Eden, for la dolce vita, the good life, the sweet life, as it was in the beginning. The creation originally was made under the benediction of God, under the smile and favor of the Creator Lord. But as the preacher king surveys his undertaking and his work, he does not look back and say, it was good. But instead, behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. We're going to look at this text in terms of, firstly, the wisdom that ends in vexation from verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. The wisdom that ends in vexation. Secondly, the pleasure that ends in disappointment in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And finally, the benefits of dead-end signs. Well, firstly, the wisdom that ends in vexation. Verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, in Scripture, the heart is the place from which flow the wellsprings of life. It is the core and seat of everything you are, your whole personality. And so we can perhaps interpret verse 13 as saying he was all in on this project, emotionally, mentally, and in every other way. And notice he's not working for anyone else. There's this repetition of myself throughout this passage. I built myself, planted myself, made myself. And one thing about that is we know that he's not beholden to someone else and their agenda. He is not serving what we would call special interests. If he had a patron, he might be tempted to arrive at the conclusion the patron wanted him to. But I think he goes into this with a genuinely open mind to see what the results would be. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What is the field of his study? Very simply, everything. 
there was a Roman African poet named Terence, and he once remarked, nothing human is foreign to me. That is, if it touches upon humanity and what it means to be human, he was not going to ignore it or suppress it. He was going to openly investigate it. Well, that's similar to the king here. No itch of curiosity will go unscratched. Any human endeavor, think about it. Architecture, economics, engineering, storytelling, art, any field of inquiry that pertains to human life, this king has sought out. This reminds us, doesn't it, of King Solomon, according to 1 Kings chapter 4. In the chapter immediately following the gift that was given to him of wisdom, what did Solomon do? The text tells us that he became an arborist, a student of trees. From the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. So not just big trees, but even small bonsai kind of trees. He was an ichthyologist studying fish and their habitat and behavior. He was an ornithologist. He studied birds, their feathers, their wings. Here is a king who is a walking encyclopedia before encyclopedias were ever printed. Now, there's a lot of sweat and study condensed into the summary of verse 13. Years, decades of reading scrolls, of analyzing various parts of the gardens and streets of Jerusalem and Canaan. He wants to gain clarity. He wants to gain comprehension. You know, I've met people, and I think they're a little bit crazy, but they have more than one doctoral degree. After spending seven years of your life in a basement research library, what are you going to do next? I'm going to get another degree. Well, King Solomon has all the equivalents of all the educational diplomas and certificates you could possibly imagine. Verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says of himself in Galatians chapter 1, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers among my own people, So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. That is, here's a king who stands head and shoulders above anyone else in terms of learning and insight. No one could claim to be his peer or his equal. And what is the result of the king's research project that he has thrown himself into in such an energetic, wholehearted way. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity 
and a striving after wind. There was a young man who studied at a prestigious university and he had a very brilliant classmate. He was just astounded at this man's intellect. But one night he saw him at a party and this brilliant man was banging his head against a concrete wall. He was shocked. Well, in a sense, that's the king here in this passage. Not literally, but in a sense, he meets this wall in front of him, and he confronts it and realizes that he cannot break through. Verse 15 tells a proverb, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I really appreciate how the author to Ecclesiastes is a master chef of sorts, but doesn't use any sugar in his recipe. He's going to present reality in all its starkness. And what is verse 15 telling us? What is crooked cannot be made straight. He's telling us of the ineradicable, indelible status or or the lines that are drawn in created reality. What God has drawn cannot be undrawn and redrawn by human hands. There's a hiking trail nearby our church building, and sometimes I walk along and there's this tree with this very crooked trunk. And even if I had the best tools and brought a team with me, I don't think I could make that trunk stand at a 90-degree angle. The curve of the wood, we could say, is baked into that tree. Well, when it comes to moral laws... No amount of discernment or understanding can change a lie into the truth. No amount of wisdom can change dishonor of parents into what is honorable. You can't change murder into life or adultery into something that is pure and good for yourself and pleasing to the Lord. You see, the wise perceive how God has made the order of the world, but you cannot change the fabric of the world as it is and as it has been created. The bent and perverse is bent and perverse, and no amount of light can change that fact. What about the second half of verse 15? What is lacking cannot be counted. This means we don't even know what we're missing out on in terms of what to survey and what to study. It's kind of like if you think you've made some progress if you're walking backwards on the beach. But then you turn around and look at the vast ocean in front of you and realize you can't even see the end of things. That's what he's saying here is his 
knowledge, as great and impressive as it may be, it's really only a drop in the bucket compared to the expanse and the wideness of things. So the king's wisdom ends in vexation. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Who has not read in any depth of what has been done in human society and history and not come across examples of truly appalling, egregious harm done by man to his fellow man? Being a thinker is being like a gardener. The more you dig, the more you plant, the more you cultivate. The more you encounter those thorns and thistles, even all the way down, no matter what plot you're working on. And, you know, I think this text has something to say for us, particularly in our Reformed community, because we do put a premium on intellectual life. And I do think there's something very good about that because we are called to love the Lord our God with all our mind. But let's remember there are limits to what we can know. There are limits to the knowledge that we have and our knowledge that comes from our heads, our own reason, it's not going to deliver us. It will not give us a certificate of exemption from this vanity. Great wisdom can be a source of pain and alarm because it even forces you to see life's absurdities. So that's the wisdom that ends in vexation. But secondly, the pleasure that ends in disappointment. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So we have the king going from pursuing wisdom and learning and understanding now to following in the path of delight and pleasure. Now, I want to underscore this and emphasize this, that he is not becoming a hedonist. In other words, He's not just throwing himself headlong into bodily or emotional pleasure without any thought. Notice how he keeps his wits uh, about him. Uh, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, he's keeping both eyes open in terms of his self-awareness and both feet planted on terra firma in this earth. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I could just get that one more thing, that one more thing, if I could just paint my room this certain color, if I can just fix my outside patio or get this one piece of furniture, if I could simply take this one vacation and see this one sight, then my cup will be full. 
For me, I remember as a teenager, it was, if I could just buy this one red t-shirt, then my friends would think I was cool and I'd be popular. You see, we're always hankering, aren't we, for more. To have status, perhaps in the eyes of others, or a sense of satisfaction in ourselves. One more experience, one more achievement, one more possession. And you read this account, and the king is basically telling us, whatever you sought, I got. In verse 2, what does he do? He sets out to open his own personal comedy club, so to speak. Laughter, it's good medicine. There was a dad with a bad case of the hiccups, and his daughter came up to him and said, Dad, just hold your breath and scare somebody. Everyone laughed. And she said, hold your breath and scare somebody. And they all had a good chuckle as dad hiccuped again. The king who was in Jerusalem, he invites the greatest court jesters to perform for him. And yes, he's able to get a laugh out of himself and the rest of his court. But in the end, what does he say? I said of laughter, it is mad. Yes, laughter is good to let off some steam and pressure. But laughter, comic relief, it cannot alter the course of things. And it cannot change your future or destiny. Comic relief is one thing. But looking to comedy as sole medicine would be what scripture says is to heal the wounds of the people lightly. It's not true balm, and it's not true medicine. What about wine? Verse 3. I took a tour of a mansion at one point, and I saw this enormous wine cellar. And then I thought to myself, what kind of wine cellar did Solomon have? Of the vintage grapes from all across the Levant. Scripture does tell us that wine is a gift from God. Psalm 104 tells us that God the creator has shown his goodness in giving wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Proverbs chapter 9 speaks of Lady Wisdom as she invites many to her banqueting table. And what's found at the feast there? Proverbs chapter 9, his, it says that she mixes wine well refined. This king here in Ecclesiastes 2 is not in any way getting drunk. He's keeping sober, but yet enjoying the blessing, the gift of wine. What is the result? He still cannot be filled in himself. There was a celebrity that was interviewed on a late night talk show, and this man was refreshingly honest. He shared, there's that part of you that's forever empty, that you're alone, 
Life is tremendously sad. Some turn to alcohol to relieve the hurt. Some take out their phones so that they won't feel alone. But he says, none of this will help. Well, what about music and sex? Verse 8, he got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. He hires a personal choral ensemble. All he has to do is snap his finger, and they'll come and sing whatever tune he wants them to sing. He can call any of his 700 wives or 300 concubines to his royal bed at any time of day or night. There is no desire that is left unmet. But he's no slouch, is he? He makes great works, verse 4. He built houses and plants vineyards for himself, plants gardens and parks and all kinds of fruit trees. He puts his hands to this task with great verve and resolve. This scene reminds me of a place called Hearst Castle. It's in California. It sits on 40,000 acres in San Simeon, built by the newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Along with enormous, capacious indoor space, he also brought many exotic animals to live there. If there was a place on earth that one might pick to live under house arrest, that might be it. But notice what he makes for himself is so that others might also enjoy as well. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's the king with a suntan, with a sparkling drink in his hand, the beautiful lady on his arm, walking through the quiet garden with its manicured shrubs. And if you talk to him, he will say, I am nonetheless greatly aching. I feel this great chagrin. We began by suggesting that the king was trying to recover and in some sense reconstruct Eden. The earthly king might attempt to rebuild Eden, but while there are fruit trees and rivers, while there is all these gifts and pleasures, what is lacking? What makes Eden paradise? The everlasting glory of God is not in this house. Why was Eden the place of delight? Because the Eden is not simply a space. It's what we would call an estate. The estate of humanity being made holy and upright. The estate of Adam and Eve being made in communion with God. The estate of man walking in friendship with the Lord. You see, 
Eden as a paradise mountain and garden because God, the very fountainhead of life and light, is there and comes to walk with his image bearers. And no matter what the earthly king does in his earthly wisdom and his earthly work, he cannot restore himself or others to that original glory. In fact, he continues to fall short of that glory. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The king over Israel is in Jerusalem. But the way this passage reads, and really the whole book reads, he and the people are in exile. Instead of life and blessing having the final word, death and curse dominate the scene. Like the little dirt cloud that follows Pigpen and Charlie Brown, there is a cloud of darkness and futility that follows this royal figure and trails him wherever he goes. So we see the wisdom that ends in vexation, the pleasure that ends in disappointment. But finally, the benefits of dead-end signs. There is a British journalist named Malcolm Muggridge who was converted to Christian faith later in his life. And he wrote this some 40 years ago. And it's amazing how this connects to our time and place today. He writes, let us then rejoice that we see around us at every hand the decay of institutions and instruments of power, see intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. This is many decades ago. But why does he say this? He says, for it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers has been explored to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last stick has been thrown into the fire, it is then that Christ's hands reach out sure and firm. So finding, he says, in everything, only deception and nothingness, the soul is constrained to have recourse to God himself and rest content with him. Here is how to find the good news in Ecclesiastes. That God in his mercy is actually boxing us in. That is to say he's closing off every door, every other way of finding happiness, finding satisfaction, finding life. God has consigned all to disobedience, Romans 11 tells us. Why? That he might have mercy on all. The book of Ecclesiastes, then, is designed with the dead-end signs all around 
not in order that we would then be stuck with nowhere to go, but so that we would take the one road that is open to us, the path of life. A few months ago, I was driving on a mountain road, and there was this sign, road closed two miles ahead. But you know how sometimes they leave these signs up, and I'm not sure if it's real or not. So I go down the road, and sure enough, it was closed. I have to turn around and follow the detour. But in Ecclesiastes are much more serious dead-end signs. And the reason it's serious is if you don't stop in your tracks when they are placed in front of you, when you seek to turn around, it will be too late for you. It will be too late. There's a gift of wisdom in Ecclesiastes to borrow from Proverbs, to keep you from being at the end of your life and groaning when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. So what are the dead ends in this passage? Well, first of all, the dead ends of human learning and wisdom. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For the weakness of God in the cross is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, namely in the cross of Christ, that's wiser than men. God shuts the door on all human learning to achieve to salvation. There's a veil of mystery that God has placed over the world. And as one of my friends says, there's no way to unscrew the inscrutable. Psalm 49, even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Man in his pomp will not remain. So, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And then in chapter 2, the other dead end sign is of finding liberty and satisfaction through the pursuits of pleasure. If you were to amass the wealth and the position of King Solomon himself, building your own empire, stretching from the Tigris and Euphrates to the Mediterranean, Indulging every desire. It'll still leave you empty and even sucked dry. There is a mercy in dead-end signs and closed doors. Because the God who puts these signs up, why is he doing it? Not to withhold from you joy. Not to withhold from you happiness, but instead that you might seek the Lord while he may be found, to call on him while he is near. And so, beloved, let us look not to this king of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, but to another king, 
who instead of growing rich, left his riches. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. A king so impoverished that he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why would you follow such a lowly king named Jesus of Nazareth, whose shirt was even stripped from him at the end of his life? Gambled off. Is it worth following such a one, considered the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things? The reason you follow him is this. He reveals, he brings a heavenly wisdom and a heavenly salvation that is not of the rulers of this age or the wisdom of this age. He prays, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the learned and have revealed them to little children for such was your gracious will. And so look to this Son of Man, the Son of God, lifted up on the cross. For he proclaims to you even now, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Let's pray. Lord, we...